It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. On the app, on your mobile, talk radio and talk TV. Good morning again. Uh, I was on uh, for half an hour with Alex Phillips, uh, and now I'm on for the next three hours. I'm standing in, of course, for the great Mike Graham, the independent republic of Mike Graham. He's left the keys in my hand. I hope I do him proud. I call this the dependent vassal state of Kevin O'Sullivan. I know my place. Uh, It's Mike Graham's world. We just live in it. Uh, Now, coming up today, I'll be joined by Ben Habib in just a little while to discuss the big stories of the day. Obviously, probably the biggest is the synchronised strike between the consultants and junior doctors today, described as the worst strike in NHS history. I would contend that people will die because of this, literally today, probably. Uh, Also coming up, uh, we'll be talking about uh, Tony Blair. Tony Blair appears to have brokered this historic meeting between Keir Starmer and Macron yesterday in Paris, where we learn that uh, Keir... He says he's not, uh, but there are fears. He's trying to make us, uh, if he gets to be Prime Minister, uh, an associate member of the EU. In other words, we'll be a member, we'll have to do everything that we say, but we won't get any benefits. So uh, if you fancy that, uh, vote here. Vote here, get Blair. That's the situation. Also, Russell Brand, uh, BBC has pledged full transparency uh, about its role in his history. Of course, he was quite a big star at the BBC in the noughties. Worked for Six Music, uh, um, uh, Radio 2, uh, made a lot of television appearances there. So they're getting uh, into their history there. They're trying to uh, investigate exactly what happened there. Was he enabled by bosses who turned a blind eye to some of his uh, questionable behaviour? Thing is, the Times and the Sunday Times have put in informa- uh, freedom of information requests to the BBC, uh, asking uh, for the history of complaints, if there were any, against Russell Brand. Uh, this is a transparency issue. Guess what? The BBC has failed to respond. The BBC always keeping the secrets of its uh, less salubrious stars, shall we say. It kept the secrets of Jimmy Savile. Uh, it is a stands accused of keeping the secrets of Hugh Edwards. And now, is it keeping the secrets of Russell Brand? Don't tell us you're being transparent when you won't tell us if there were any complaints against Russell Brand when he was working for you. That's not transparency. That's sinister and it's keeping secrets. Typical BBC. We'll be talking about that a little later. 
Uh, also, uh, when we uh, talk about Diane Abbott, Diane Abbott says that uh, Keir Starmer has deliberately ruined her career by uh, linking her to anti-Semitism, which she, of course she uh, denies. And also, uh, we'll be talking about uh, Nigel Farage's fury that uh, the Financial Conduct Authority, uh, the city watchdog, has decided, uh, concluded after a brief investigation, that bank accounts aren't being closed or weren't being closed, aren't being closed for political reasons. Uh, well, uh, Nigel Farage's were, uh, and there are many other people who say that their accounts were closed for political reasons. Uh, as I said earlier, Nigel uh, Lawson, the former Margaret Thatcher's former Chancellor of the Exchequer, his granddaughter had her account closed uh, and and uh, she's Down syndrome. They say that she's a politically uh, sensitive person, that she could be politically compromised. Well, you know, in other words, so they say it's not going on. It is going on. You know, what, why have they concluded this? So uh, we need to do that. Also, uh, the Antiques Roadshow uh, is becoming more and more woke. It keeps, you know, there was some ladies with a, uh, an artifact the other day and uh, it hailed from uh, one of the colonies, India or something. And uh, the expert said, and uh, were this to be, would you be prepared to repatriate uh, this work of art? I mean, it's their little family heirloom. You know, so in other words, uh, after years of being one of the nation's favorite programs, I'm afraid it looks as if Antique Roadshow is disappearing down that same old, all too familiar, woke rabbit hole. I've had enough of it, haven't you? Uh, now, uh, let's uh, start the show. Let's go to my first guest. Uh, he is, of course, former Brexit MEP, Ben Habib. Uh, ben, good morning. Uh, before we start, uh, bear with me. I've got some breaking news. Uh, the police officer who shot Chris Carber in South London in September last year has been charged with murder, the Crown Prosecution said. Uh, that may well prove to be uh, contra controversial. Uh, now, uh, first of all, Ben, today uh, we're going to be going over to some hospitals uh, in a little while. Uh, it is uh, the synchronised strike of the consultants, hospital consultants and junior doctors. It's been described as the worst strike in NHS history. It is deliberately targeting patients, isn't it? I mean, why would you coordinate your strikes if not to compromise patient safety? Well, absolutely right, Kevin. I mean, 120,000 people, a record number of people died in the last year waiting <laughs> for treatment. And that has to be uh, exacerbated materially by these doctors going on strike. Of course, the NHS was in huge problems after lockdowns. You know, the, the waiting list doubled in the period of time for which people were waiting also doubled during lockdowns from, I think, about four million before lockdowns to now pushing eight million people on that waiting list. But of course, every strike, every walkout by nurses, junior doctors or consultants, um, and of course, you know, a coordinated strike makes it much worse. Every walkout causes greater health complications for the country. And uh, the government has to get, get ahead of this problem. And it's just another sign of the United Kingdom not working. Rishi Sunak said that he was going to get waiting lists down. Well, waiting lists are getting worse. 
more and more people are dying on that waiting list. More and more people are failing to get diagnosed <laughs> with cardiovascular uh, cancer and so on in time in order to get treatment. We are creating a health crisis. And I must <laughs> just reiterate that the beginnings of this crisis, the roots of this crisis, was because the NHS became the COVID treatment centre during lockdowns. That's all it did. And in the pursuit of saving the NHS, which we kept told we were going to do by staying at home and uh, locking ourselves up, actually what we've done is condemn the NHS. And uh, the strikes are further evidence of it. Uh, and uh, in terms of patient safety, I mean, there won't be any. No doctors, no consultants. Uh, this no. means, you know, let's not beat about the bush, Ben. This means patients will die. This is their bargaining chip. The bargaining chip is the safety of patients. We will compromise the safety of patients. If necessary, let them die so that you have to give us a pay rise. Uh, it's not a very nice equation, is it? It's not. As I mentioned, 120,000 record number of people died on the waiting list last year. That's nearly as many people who died from COVID or died with COVID, I should say, rather than from COVID. It's debatable whether the number of people who died, you know, having contracted COVID died from it or not. No, I think it's an utter disaster. The NHS is completely broken. And um, I don't know how Rishi Sunak is going to get ahead of this problem, because as we can all see, it's, you know, it's a self-reinforcing downward spiral. You know, somehow he's got to put the brakes on it and reverse it. I, I see no easy way out of this problem. Uh, just before we move on, I should point out that the 850,000 uh, operations have been cancelled uh, or postponed since uh, December because of these strikes. And uh, during a recent two-day strike by doctors, 30,000 cancer appointments, including surgeries, were cancelled. That's what's going on on a daily basis. That's what these strikes are doing. Uh, they are turning the NHS into an utter basket case. Something needs to be done. Uh, and it's not for want of money. Can I just say it's not for want of money. Last year, we spent much more than <laughs> what they call the Brexit dividend on the NHS. You know, that £350 million a week that, we, yeah. that Boris Johnson controversially put on that bus. Well, yeah. we spent a lot more than that per week in in addition since we brexited it's got nothing to do with money record sums being sent on the nhs it's just a broken formula yeah 200 billion quid a year uh, that is enough money Absolutely. for any organization it doesn't need any more money it needs serious reorganization uh, but the chances of any british politician being brave enough to confront that necessity are next to zero this will stagger on in the mess that it always has been it's a disgrace it really is um talking of disgraces uh, guess who uh, brokered Keir Starmer's embarrassing summit in Paris with Emmanuel Macron yesterday? Uh, pulling his strings, of course, it is Sir, Sir Tony Blair. <laughs> Unbelievable. Well, or believable, know, we more know, to the point. Oh, it's very believable. I and mean, we know that Starmer is an out and out Europhile. Uh, you know, in 2019, he was proposing that. Uh, the Labour Party should negotiate a really good deal with the EU and then put it to the people of the United Kingdom, giving them a choice between the really good deal that they negotiated and remaining in the EU. And then he would campaign to remain. Do you remember that? Yes, I do. And, yes, uh, I do. And Starmer will not hesitate to take us back into the EU or get us as close as possible as he can to it. That is his aim. 
you know, when, when, when it comes to dealing with the uh, migration crisis, the illegal migration crisis we've got across the channel, the first thing he did was hop across the channel to see his mate uh, Macron, go to the Hague, see if he can sort out a deal with the European Union on it. Now he's talking to the European Union about, you know, an even closer relationship. We don't want a close relationship with the EU. Exactly. Down that path, down that path lies much more socialism, much more government spend, much more government intervention, an abrogation of responsibility from Westminster to Brussels, and a complete abuse of the Brexit vote in 2016. What we need is a government that takes back control, puts the British national interest first, and takes the steps that we can as an independent sovereign country to sort our own problems out without doing it on a bilateral or multilateral basis. We've had enough agreements with foreign countries and foreign institutions in order to try and solve our problems. We need a government that's going to do it unilaterally using the ample power that they have in government and through parliament. That's what we voted for in 2016. That's what they need to do. Starmer will not deliver it. And frankly, Tony Blair, as you said, Kevin, at the opening, you vote Starmer, you get Tony Blair. And Tony Blair had nothing Tony Blair did in office resulted in good for this country. Everything turned out bad. I agree. Under Tony Blair. Disastrous guy. And uh, don't forget that uh, Keir Starmer now is denying that uh, he's basically applied for Britain to become an associate member of the EU. He's denying that. Uh, my bet. He's lying. Uh, let's. Uh, uh, we're going to go to break now, uh, Ben. But uh, gather your thoughts on the migrant crisis. There are new developments. I'm talking to Ben Habib, former Brexit Party MEP. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV live from the Talk Radio studios. See it, hear it, think it. Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back. I'm still talking to former Brexit Party MEP uh, Ben Habib. Uh, ben, uh, let's talk about the migrant crisis. So we learned today that uh, with the sickening inevitability, the daily cost of housing migrants in hotels all over the country, about 500 of them. Uh, we've been saying for many uh, months now, 7 million a day, where well, it's now more than 8 million a day. And then sort of almost comically, uh, we learned that down in Portland, in Dorset, uh, where the Bibby Stockholm barge lies, a rusting, empty hulk uh, with no migrants on it, there's a yet another plan to make it safe. So we were told that I think this week uh, 435 or something migrants may go on board. But no, no, no. They're going over it again to make it safe. Having done it about five times before, uh, it's uh, 50 years old, that boat. Uh, uh, it's never caught fire. Of course, the uh, fire brigade described it as a floating Grenfell. Uh, they're never going to get anybody on board that thing, are they? I mean, it's complete red herring, frankly, other than the vast cost that we've expended on Bibby Stockholm. In policy terms, it's a complete red herring. Even if it worked in spades, it was only ever going to accommodate 500 people. That, you know, now, in, now that we're in the sort of uh, pitch, uh, peak period for migrants crossing the channel, that's less than one day's intake. Um, you know, this notion that we can get a grip of the illegal crossings of the channel through domestic measures, either to house them uh, in tents or maybe Stockholm or air bases or to deport them to Rwanda or to deter them somehow. That approach to the migrant crisis is a completely flawed approach. There is no solution 
that can be delivered to the illegal crossings of the channel through domestic legislation and measures taken domestically in the United Kingdom. All we, there's only one solution to this migrant crisis. It doesn't come with bilateral agreements with France. It comes with unilateral British action in the channel. We have to develop the political will and courage to stop the boats. Unless and until this government recognizes that border control means the controlling of our borders in a physical sense, the traditional sense that we all associate with borders when we think about them, we will not get a grip of this crisis. The reason we have the crisis is because Italy, Greece, the West Balkans have completely failed in their obligation to their own people to stop the boats in the Mediterranean and turn them round as they are entitled to do under international law. Instead, they've taken these people in. Lampedusa, which is this island off the coast of Italy, looks like a completely dystopian vision of what is yet to come across the entirety of Europe. Once they get into Italy, they can then use the Schengen zone effectively to travel freely wherever they wish to go, encouraged, therefore, to come straight to Calais, park themselves on the beach, pay a smuggling gang that that treads this well-trodden route day in, day out, and should have been busted by the French authority, you know, years ago, um, pay them significant sums of money, willfully get into these dinghies, all of them looking pretty healthy as they enter those dinghies, leave France, where they have £5,000 a year spent on them, and come to the UK, where we spend £50,000 a year on them. And rising, as you said, last year we spent £4 billion on housing, treating and medically treating, uh, and medically caring for these illegal migrants. That's more per head than we pay our veterans who are homeless, more per head than we pay those on benefits in the United Kingdom. The maximum you can get on benefits is £23,000 a year as a British citizen. £23,000 a year. We're spending £50,000 a year on each illegal migrant. That is no deterrent. As I say, no domestic policy is going to get a grip of this. We need a government that recognizes what border control is. And then border force needs to be trained and directed to do its job. Yes, indeed. And uh, uh, this is going to get worse and worse and worse. Only recently it was predicted uh, that in three years time we're seeing this nightly cost. Uh, of the hotels and the various accommodation centres where migrants are being held. To the best of my knowledge, Ben, this bold scheme uh, to commission uh, disused air bases, uh, derelict prisons, holiday camps, uh, we haven't got a single migrant into any of them so far due to local protests. And as we just uh, alluded to, the Bibby Stockholm barge lies there, a rusting hulk, a symbol of the fiasco of the migrant crisis. And in three years' time, it is confidently predicted that our nightly hotel bill for migrants will be £30 million. That's £11 billion a year. I seem to remember the Prime Minister not so long ago standing before a lectern uh, on which was written, Stop the Boats. Uh, He should have put on the bill, I will not stop the boats. (laughs) It is absolutely hopeless. Uh, Now, uh, still with uh, Mr Sunak, uh, uh, he's beginning to spot that his green policies might not be that popular. You know, it's taken a long time for some of the people in Westminster to realise if you instigate policies 
that uh, make people poorer, you know, with big levies on their energy bills, and make them colder because of useless heat pumps that are getting rid of their perfectly good gas boilers. Uh, if you tell them you can't drive petrol cars or diesel cars, if you tell them uh, you can't go to Spain on holiday because it's bad for the environment, the aeroplane uh, will damage the ecology, if you tell them all of that, that maybe it's not a vote win winner. Uh, so it's, it's <laughs> finally dawned on our Prime Minister. Uh, people don't actually want this. So now, he, with hearing uh, tales of he, it's the bonfire of the green pledges, he's going to cut back on all of it. He's not going to ban new petrol and diesel cars by 2030. But of course, all of which I think is quite encouraging because people don't give a damn about this green claptrap. They're just trying to feed their kids, keep a roof over their heads, get to work. They don't care about any of this. Uh, all, that's all very encouraging. However, of course... Uh, with a sickening inevitability, he says, but we're still committed to carbon net zero by 2050, which means the nightmare will continue. The nightmare will continue. And that is the sad thing. Um, it is, of course, welcome that he's deferred the, uh, you know, uh, making illegal of uh, internal combustion engines and he's taking the pressure off heat pumps, etc. But that is just a pimple. The commitments made in the Paris Accord to reduce carbon emissions by a certain percentage each year until we get to 2050. That commitment remains. And that commitment is not just in the uh, Paris Accord, but it's in the trade and cooperation agreement that we signed with the European Union. And it is no doubt in a whole host of other commitments we've made internationally, which is partly why I'm so sick and tired of these commitments and multilateral arrangements we entered into. They they forever which will, which will undermine make no democracy. No difference to the world ecology at all because we're a no. very, very minor emitter of carbon uh, emissions. So uh, we only uh, produce less than 1%. China, meanwhile, produces 28%. Uh, but uh, if you could just get rid of carbon net zero, the pledge to get to that by 2050, which we won't do, no one really understands what it means anyway, especially politicians. I can uh, tell you what it means. Yeah. It means we're going to be economically destitute. Yeah, exactly. Is what it means if they don't get off this yeah. path. Yeah, well, we keep, carry on buying windmills and solar panels from China. It is so yeah. incoherent and ridiculous. It defies belief. I just want to get a quick last word from you, Ben, on uh, Nigel Farage yesterday slamming the Financial Conduct Authority, which has conducted an investigation into whether or not people are being debanked, you know, they're having their accounts closed for political reasons. It has concluded that this is not happening and did not happen. Well, it is happening. It happened to Nigel Farage. Why did Dame Alison Gray have to resign as the CEO of uh, NatWest and Coots? Uh, I'll tell you why she had to resign, because it was categorically proved that Nigel Farage's accounts were closed because of his politics. So the Financial Conduct Authority is part of the problem. It's not part of the solution here. The Financial Conduct Authority itself, if you go to its website, practices DEI, diversity, equality and inclusion. It also practices the promotion, exactly, the promotion of this in, inexorable drive to economic emasculation through net zero. It is a completely captured institution. The idea that it could have uh, reviewed thousands of bank accounts that have been closed every day over the last year uh, in the last couple of months and then reach a conclusion that it's got nothing to do with people's political ideology is fundamentally flawed. 
what it is is a whitewash from the FCA, and it is absolutely right that Nigel Farage is calling them out, calling them out. The FCA is doing its job in that it is regulating entities like Coots, requiring them actually to take a view on people like Nigel, quite the antithesis of what they should be doing in reality. But they are regulating Coots and they are encouraging people like Coots, insurance companies, pension funds, public companies to promote DEI, to promote this inexorable march towards net zero. Nigel disagreed with that and the FCA uh, doesn't like it. The FCA doesn't like it. None of the entities which it regulates like it. They are all captured by that regulatory framework. But while I'm on the FCA, I should just say my own company, which is a listed company, has made two serious complaints to the FCA about certain confidential matters that I can't disclose yeah, on yeah, air yeah. in the last in the last few months. The FCA hasn't even acknowledged receipt of those complaints, let alone investigated them. Well, the FCA is not it's not interested in doing its job. Kevin. They probably found out, uh, Ben, that you're you're not left wing and uh, that for them is the ultimate crime. It's a disgrace. It is happening and they say it's not. It absolutely is happening. It happened to Nigel Farage. How can they say it's not happening? Absolutely disgraceful. Uh, ben, fantastic to talk to you as always. That was Ben Habib, former Brexit Party MEP. When we come back, uh, we'll be going live to uh, University College Hospital uh, to the picket line where uh, consultants and uh, junior doctors are synchronising a three-day walkout described as the worst strike in NHS history. That next, I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV, live in the Talk Radio studios. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Uh, welcome back. As I just said before the break, it has been described as the worst strike in NHS history. For the first time, two sets of medical frontline workers are coordinating their walkout. It is a synchronised strike between uh, the consultants who struggle by on about 150 grand a year uh, and uh, the junior doctors. Uh, they want more 150 grand a year. They really deserve more money, don't they? Uh, oh, I'm really weeping for them. Uh, patients are dying while they uh, stand there on the picket line. But uh, hey, who cares about that? Eh? They want 35% pay rise. Uh, let's go straight over to uh, the University College of London Hospital, uh, where our man, our reporter, Talk TV correspondent, Nick Ellaby, is with the strikers on the picket line. Uh, good morning, Nick. Morning, Kev. Uh, what's the scene there? Uh, how are these uh, striking consultants and junior doctors justifying this walkout? Well, the scene at the moment, as you can see behind me, uh, the junior doctors and consultants' uh, strikes are overlapping today. So the consultants are on a second day of their strike. It's their third of the year. Junior doctors, this is their sixth strike of the year, starting at seven o'clock this morning and running for three days. This is unprecedented. NHS England are concerned because they're now down to what they call Christmas Day cover. So on the wards, you're talking about bare bones cover. Um, the A&E departments are working as normal. Patients and, and people out there, if you've got an emergency medical problem, you can still go to A&E. Uh, otherwise, it's GPs or call 111. But uh, a lot of junior doctors are trainee GPs, so we expect those services to be affected as well. 
In terms of down here at uh, University College Hospital in central London, there's a lot of support from motorists, bus drivers as well, tooting their horns, and the Uber drivers ringing their bells. So we've seen quite a lot of, uh, of support from people driving past, but as we know, the country is split on this. Um, one thing to remember actually is in October, beginning of October 2nd, 3rd and 4th, there is another planned double strike from junior doctors and consultants for three days together. So things could be about to get worse. They're asking for better money and conditions. The government isn't moving. They've offered junior doctors a pay rise of 8.8% on average. Junior doctors earn between 32 and 63 grand a year. And consultants, they've offered 6%, but they are holding out for more than inflation. They also want some backdated pay, not necessarily in a lump sum, all in one go, but they're saying that in the last 15 years they've suffered a real terms pay cut of about 17% and the Institute for Financial Studies does back up those figures. The other problem is we've got a lot of doctors leaving NHS England and going to places like Australia, New Zealand, Canada, where they're being paid more money to do the same job. I, I spoke to a junior doctor here earlier and she says she's seeing lots of targeted ads on Instagram for jobs in New Zealand and Australia. I asked her how many people are considering moving. She told me everyone. Okay, well, why don't they just go and do it? I mean, I noticed behind you, Nick, there's uh, 50 or so uh, militant medics standing there and none of them will come to the camera to talk about their case. Uh, that could be because they realise that uh, if they say, I'm on £145,000 a year and I want a 35% pay rise, perhaps, just maybe, they won't get that much sympathy. Uh, Nick, great report. We'll talk to you later. Thank you very much. That's Nick Ellaby, Talk TV correspondent outside University College Hospital in London. Uh, let's talk about this strike uh, generally, though, uh, with former NHS Trust Chair Martin Gower. Good morning, Martin. Morning, Kevin. Nice to talk to you. Uh, well, nice. Always nice to talk to you, Martin. But this isn't a very nice day, is it? This is unprecedented. Uh, a synchronised strike between consultants struggling by on £145,000, £150,000 a year and junior doctors. I mean, there's only one reason they've coordinated this walkout. That is to harm patients, isn't it? Yeah, and I, I, I rather think that if... Um, if the uh, government or Steve Barclay or Rishi Sunak or somebody doesn't uh, get round the table as they're requesting, um, these will go on. And I think they will intensify. You know, if they don't feel enough patients are dying, you know, they'll, they'll intensify it so they get better numbers in, in terms of deaths, you know. It's just awful. Uh, and uh, I mean, it would be good if everyone could get round the table. But let's... Uh, uh, consider, if we can, uh, some of the damage that's already been done by these strikes. They've been going on now since way before Christmas. Uh, since Christmas, have been 850,000, you know, the best part of a million uh, surgeries and operations have had to be cancelled because of these strikes. Uh, one of the strikes a couple of weeks ago, two-day strike, uh, apparently 30,000 cancer appointments had to be cancelled, and that included some vital life-saving surgery. Uh, the effect of these strikes, uh, even when they're not coordinated, is catastrophic, isn't it? So now we've got two sets of frontline medical workers, doctors and consultants, standing on picket lines together. I mean, the mind boggles at uh, the damage that this walkout will do. Yeah, and um, the answer, of course, is just to give in to the demands of the National Union of Doctors, you know, call themselves the BMA. 
Um, and, and, and I don't think that's going to happen, frankly. Um, there, there are uh, the idea as well that they continue to say, well, all our colleagues are going off to Australia and New Zealand. Well, let's be honest, they can earn more in Australia and New Zealand, but certainly not because the ministers of health in those countries have decided how much they're going to pay their doctors. Um, these are independent and, and private or charitably supported uh, organisations, and they no negotiate locally with their own um within their own organizations and indeed that the idea that you give blanket percentages to any group of workers irrespective of individual performances to me uh, is is just something that belongs in history uh, indeed now you and i've spoken about this before um I think we're we're at this point. Well, now that they're starting to coordinate to synchronise these strikes, you know, deliberately to damage mm. uh, and to compromise patient safety, to essentially stand on picket lines while their patients are dying back in the hospital behind them, it surely is time. If they're going to carry on like this, uh, and they're demanding thirty five percent, why do you demand thirty five percent? Because you don't want a solution. You want to carry on striking uh, to cause problems for the evil Tory government. This is politically motivated. So if they're going to carry on like this, it must be time for the government to start considering adding to the list of professions that aren't allowed to go on strike, as in the police, as in prison officers, as in the armed forces, frontline medical workers. It must be time to start thinking about banning these people from walking out of hospitals and patients dying because of that. Yeah, I mean, I think that's, that's uh, something they need to consider. I'm not awfully fond of the idea, frankly, of banning strikes among doctors. But but it's part of this sort of monolithic structure that we have that we might want to do that because our health system sadly is run by politicians um, and and not by healthcare management and and as they as they are in other places. I mean I think the other thing of course is the for the consultants this has been a grand opportunity for them to do more, some more private work while they're on strike. Yeah. Um, so while they damage the. Uh, the NHS, a number of them are being able to feather their own pockets by uh, doing more private work. Indeed, I I've heard of an example recently of somebody who quite recently decided to go private uh, for, for a, uh, a hip replacement. And the doctor said, well, what are you doing on Thursday, you know, and on Wednesday? And they came straight in. And interestingly, it was one of the days they were going on strike. So, um, yeah. It's extraordinary, is isn't it? It is extraordinary. I mean, it's like... They're kind of feathering their own nest because by uh, making the waiting list longer by going on strike, more and more people are getting together what money they can to go private. And guess who they see? They see the consultants who are on strike. So uh, make yeah. of that what you will. Uh, Martin, excellent to talk to you as always. Uh, that was Martin Gower, former NHS Trust Chair. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV live from the Talk Radio studios. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. This is the second hour of uh, my mid-morning spectacular, The Dependent Vassal Split of Kevin O'Sullivan. I am, of course, standing in for the great Mike Graham, who's taking a well-deserved week off. Uh, usually this would be the Independent Republican, Mike Graham, of course. Now, coming up in the next 60 minutes, in just a little while, uh, we're going to be talking to a junior doctor, giving their side of the story, why they're on strike. Uh, and also, uh, we'll be revisiting the Russell Brand saga uh given that uh, basically his business empire 
has collapsed. Uh, he's lost all his sources of income. Uh, he's had to close two, uh, two of his own businesses. Uh, he's had to close his pub. Uh, he's been dropped by his publisher and so on and so forth. Uh, so we'll be talking about that. Taking your calls later in the hour. 0344 And we're going to show you some video from Mark Drayford's Wales. You know that everyone now has to drive everywhere at 20 miles an hour. We're going to show you the a grim reality of what it's like in uh, slow car Wales. 20 miles an hour. Uh, stand by for that video later in the hour. Uh, it sums up the situation and I think it might make you laugh as well. Uh, now, before we get to any of that, though, let's remind ourselves of Nigel Farage's reaction to the fi Financial Co uh, Conduct Authority's decision, conclusion after an investigation, that bank accounts are not being closed for political reasons, that customers are not having their accounts closed for political reasons, uh, which is a strange conclusion to come to because it was categorically proved that Nigel Farage's accounts were closed because of his politics. Uh, this is what Nigel said about the FCA report. Didn't they read the subject access request that I got back from Coots? Haven't they seen the other UKIP members, Conservative members and Brexit Party MEPs who've been debanked? It's a list as long as your arm. And this gets to the heart of it. The FCA themselves are overtly political. Uh, well, there you are. That's Nigel. Uh, he also called their decision that uh, debanking for political reasons is not happening a whitewash and a joke. Uh, I wonder what my next guest uh, feels about this. Uh, she is former MEP, former Tory uh, cabinet minister, of course, Anne Widdicombe. Uh, welcome, Anne. Thank you. Uh, your feelings about this? I mean, I think it's extraordinary that the Financial Cotho uh, Conduct Authority, the sort of city watchdog, has investigated this situation that uh, hit the headlines uh, when Nigel Farage revealed he was being cancelled uh, bank-wise for his political views. It's extraordinary that they've concluded that this is not happening. Well, it actually did happen to Nigel Farage, and there are many other people who will tell you it happened to them. Um, and the most egregious and ridiculous example was that the granddaughter of Margaret Thatcher's former Chancellor of the Exchequer, Nigel Lawson, had her bank details questioned. I think she had her account temporarily closed, and she's got Down syndrome. Uh, now, this... It, the, the fact the FCA say it's not happening is, is sort of Kafkaesque. It's bizarre, isn't it? Yes, let's make a distinction here between being debanked for political views uh, and being debanked because you're a politically exposed person and the, the banks just think it's far too much back to look after you. They're different. And Nigel was quite clearly, I mean, the emails were published. You know, we saw the emails that were exchanged within Coots that clearly said that his values did not align with theirs. He was debanked because of his political views. And if the FCA say this doesn't happen, then how do they explain those emails? How do they explain the um, experience of the Halifax customer, um, who I think was a Church of England vicar, uh, who objected uh, when the uh, entire bank was festooned uh, <laughs> with, with pride or whatever it was, and immediately... He had his account closed because he had dared to express a contrary view. Um, this is the financial sector. 
answer to no platforming is what they do. They debank and stuff. So the FCA, frankly, has just made a complete fool of itself. We yeah. should all be laughing at them if it weren't so serious, because if they can't conclude a little investigation like that, when all the evidence is actually stacked up and visible for all to see, then how do they handle the more complicated, obscure stuff? Yeah. How do they do it? Exactly. And uh, perhaps the FCA would like to give us their theories on uh, why the chief executive of Coots, Dame Alison Gray, had to step down from her job. Uh, I'll tell you why. I mean, partly it was because she uh, was indiscreet about uh, Nigel Farage's personal finances to a BBC journalist. But more than that, it's because she had to admit that his account, uh, contrary to what she said originally, that his account was closed down for political reasons because his views did not align with her bank's values. So what the FCA could perhaps explain to us why they think she stepped down. Well, they will say she stepped down because she broke client confidentiality, which she basically obviously did. I mean, under no circumstance should any official of any bank, however senior or however junior, be talking uh, particularly to a BBC reporter uh, about a client's confidential affairs. Um, so the FCA know that. But they also, as I say, they know from the email evidence that was provided uh, that he was, uh, Nigel was debanked quite specifically because of his political views. It's there in black and white. How can the FCA ignore that? I don't get it. Yeah, well, it's, it's, it's sort of staring truth in the face and then lying, basically, it seems to me. And uh, when you talk about politically exposed people, uh, I'm sure that there are occasions when, uh, the you know, the... Uh, the closing of those accounts might be justified. But I, I think that is just language to, to disguise the fact that banks are taking decisions about their customers, about their politics. Now, in fairness, it did happen to Gina Miller, uh, the well-known Remainer obsessive. Uh, so it does happen on both sides of the fence. But you and I, Anne, know full well that mostly it happens to right-wing people. Yes, as I say, there is a difference between being debanked for your political views and for a bank saying, oh, we just can't bear to go through these procedures. But, but, big, big thing here. Where did those procedures come from? They came from the EU. So presumably, as we no longer belong to the EU, uh, we're entitled to make it very much easier for banks to deal with uh, politically exposed people without all the bureaucracy involved. So, you know, what is the problem there? Why haven't people acted on that? It's almost got buried. Uh, in all the discussion. Uh, but these were EU rules which governed uh, how banks had to take care of politically exposed people. Well, we can change that now. Uh, we can. And uh, uh, Nigel Farage also uh, calls for... If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural-looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural-looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth, sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information, 
information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. A similar system that they have in Germany where every citizen has the legal right to a bank account. Uh, so in other words, uh, no one could be in a situation where they can't have a bank. So he says that we should have that here. Uh, normally, I would think, well, do we really need that kind of law? But given the behaviour of the banks in recent months, surely it's not a bad idea, is it? Yeah, I think your problem there is if you've got somebody who is actually fraudulent and they're using their account for money laundering, uh, you've got to allow the banks to, to close down that account. Um, but I think that the, the basic right to a personal <laughs> bank account um, must surely just be a, a, a requirement of, of everyday living. I don't understand. There are people without bank accounts. I don't understand how they manage. I don't understand how they pay their bills, how they carry out transactions in, in this day and age. Yeah, um, it... Once it was perfectly possible, you put your cash under the mattress or in a biscuit tin. But it's not possible now. Yeah, the age of the biscuit tin is over. As uh, Nigel says, when you get your bank accounts cancelled, you effectively become a non-person. Yeah. There's nothing you can do, literally. Uh, now, you mentioned the EU earlier, Anne, and I'm glad you did. Uh, I wanted to get your thoughts on uh, Keir Starmer's summit in Paris yesterday with Emmanuel Macron, the French president, uh, whereby, you know, he makes no bones about it. He's cozying up to the EU. He wants much closer ties to Europe. Um, and uh, with a sickening inevitability, we learned today that guess who brokered that meeting it was good old Sir Tony Blair. Can't we get him, can't we persuade him to retire? Well, I wish somebody would persuade him to retire and I wish he would stop seeing himself as some sort of great statesman when all he's actually doing in this case is flying in the face of the will of the British people, which was very clearly expressed in a referendum. Now, Blair didn't want to leave, Starmer didn't want to leave. Um, you know, they, they, they are committed to the EU. Uh, and my big fear is, no, we won't. We won't ever rejoin formally because that would be too costly. And we won't ever actually do that. But there, as I've said before, there are two ways of, of rejoining Europe. Yeah. One is formally and one is informally. And this guy is going to try all he can do uh, to the extent even of accepting free movement, which is one of the reasons why we voted 
for Brexit. Uh, he's going to try all he can do uh, by, I'm talking about Starmer now, not Blair, mm. all he can do uh, to get us effectively, if not legally, in the EU. Absolutely. And uh, my theory on Keir Starmer, what, what I find uh, bewildering, is that he thinks him flying to The Hague and saying, oh, let's do a deal on the migrants with the EU, go to Paris, oh, let's get ever closer to, the, to Europe, let's get back into the fold. That my, I'm bewildered by why he thinks that is what the British people want, why uh, he thinks that's what we voted for. I suspect it's this, that he is so steeped in his own culture, spends all of his time talking to his Romaniac uh, shadow cabinet, that he thinks that their obsessive Europhilism is reflective of the people of this country. Well, it isn't, I don't think. Well, it's exactly the same mistake that Cameron made right back at the time of the referendum. He was so sure that everybody thought like the metropolitan elite and that everybody thought like he did. He was so sure of that that he actually nailed his colours firmly to the mast of one side sure. of the referendum, which he should never have done. He had to resign as a result. Uh, and I think it's all part of the same culture. And Starmer is also part of that culture. Uh, and as I say, it's trying in the face of what the people voted for. But ask yourself this. Why do we need to go back in? Our exports to Europe yeah. are actually up. And I don't just mean up on pre-COVID. I mean up on long before that, that up from when we yeah. were members of the EU. Why yeah. do we need to go back in? We don't. Yeah, we're not doing so bad. I mean, the people say we are, but we're doing a lot better than Germany, which is in yeah. recession. We're doing arguably better than France, Spain, Italy. Uh, we're doing OK. And I agree with you, Anne. There's no reason to cosy up to the EU. We no. don't need them anymore. And that's why we voted to leave, because we don't want to need the EU. Keir Starmer is on the wrong track here. Uh, Anne, it's always a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you so much for your time. Anne Whittacombe there, former MEP, former Tory cabinet minister of course as well when we come back uh, we're going back to the junior doctors and consultants synchronized strike we're going to talk to a junior doctor get their side of the story that next i'm kevin o'sullivan this is talk tv live in the talk radio studios see it hear it think it talk radio and talk tv in a minute, we'll be going back to the Russell Brand story. Uh, basically, his world is collapsing around him after four women, uh, five now, accuse him of uh, sexual assault, uh, one of full-scale rape. He denies those allegations, uh, but uh, uh, already he's feeling the effect of full-scale cancellation. Uh, he's had to close down two of his businesses. He's closed down his own pub. Uh, he's been cancelled by his publisher. His publicist has left him. And, of course, YouTube have demonetized his uh, channel, uh, which he gets a million quid a year from. So uh, it's not going well for Mr Brand. Uh, but we'll be talking about the BBC, which uh, I would contend is not being entirely transparent about its role. Uh, in his alleged nefarious activities back in the noughties. Uh, so the BBC stands accused of covering up here. Once again, always keeping secrets, that organisation. We give it, you know, what is it, 160 quid a year, and uh, they don't tell us anything about themselves. Uh, it's good, that, isn't it? Not much of a deal. Uh, now, uh, let's uh, return, though, to the uh, doctors and consultants strike. Uh, coordinated strike, synchronised. They're all on picket lines today. It's been described as the worst strike in NHS history. NHS history, uh, 
Uh, we've talked uh, about the other side of the story. Now it's time to get the striker's side of the story. And a warm welcome uh, to junior Dr. Taha Nadim. Uh, good morning, Taha. Hi, Kevin. How are you? You okay? I'm okay. Uh, try to lay out your case, if you can, uh, because uh, as I understand it, you're asking for 35%. Uh, that's not really realistic, is it? Um, what, 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 what is your case? What is it you want from the government in order to end these accursed strikes? Yeah, so I think this number of 35% gets banded around a lot because it seems like a high number. It does. The, yeah. the, the reality is, is that that is the amount that's been lost. So 35%, although it seems like a high number, is the amount of pay that a junior doctor today compared to a junior doctor a few years back in 2008 would be getting. Mm. Um, so, of course, that's why this is termed as pay restoration rather than anything else. Um, the simplest way to put it in my my eyes is to talk about real terms. So, you know, a junior doctor, an F1 doctor um, who could be looking after, you know, a relative of yours or mine um, overnight in a hospital is only being paid £14 an hour at the moment. We're asking that that goes to £19 an hour, which I feel is a fair fair thing to ask for. Uh, well, look, my, my view on this is, uh, you know, nurses, doctors, consultants, frontline medical workers, uh, you've definitely got a case for a pay rise uh, and you deserve one. And I'm not sure I go along uh, with the amounts being requested or demanded. Uh, but what I would say is if only we could reorganise the NHS, stop paying 3,500 middle managers who aren't medically qualified uh, more than six figures salaries. You take a lot of that money and start giving it to people like you. We might reach a happy solution. Uh, so that's my view on it. Uh, so I'm not against you guys. But what I would ask you, Taha, uh, is why have you junior doctors and the consultants decided to synchronize your strike it's because you know that is really going to compromise patient safety and, and i'll be honest with you it seems almost spiteful i can understand where you're coming from and i think a lot of this gets brought down to the narrative that's being portrayed you have to remember that um, a synchronized strike is in the short term yes it can be alarming for people but there is safe staffing there um, at the at present, we have what's called Christmas Day staffing. So if we're so worried about staffing today, I would argue we should be worried about the staffing on Christmas Day or bank holidays as well. Um, the reason it's being done is because we're being pushed towards this. You know, the recruitment and retention of doctors is key. Uh, we're hemorrhaging healthcare workers out of the country. You know, I think there's more than 100,000 NHS vacancies. Um, and we're not going to recruit and retain doctors unless you pay them fairly. And I think... The fact that both junior doctors and consultants feel this way should tell us something. I mean, these are the same people that um, myself and the public have been relying on during the pandemic. These are the same doctors that we were clapping for, um, you know, a couple of years back. We haven't suddenly turned spiteful or suddenly uh, become inherently bad people. We are the same doctors that were there at that time. We are there now as well. But yeah. at present, things are broken and they need to be fixed. Um, I would suggest, uh, Taha, that uh, you know, junior doctors like yourself, I mean, it's far easier to be sympathetic towards you guys and ladies, of course, um, than it is towards the consultants. I mean, I think the consultants, 
You know, I, you know, I know they think that their, their pay has been stagnated over a long time, but it's extremely difficult uh, to feel sorry for people who are earning a, an average of £150,000 a year from the NHS and who, we all know, uh, mostly make a lot of money from their private practices as well. You're talking about people probably pulling in half a million quid a year. Do they really think uh, we're going to weep for them? I don't know them? where those... I'll be honest. Well, they get 150 grand, don't they, from the NHS? If not, why not? Uh, uh, yeah, why not is a good question. Well, what, do, what do they earn then? One hundred and fifty grand is not. Well, how the much? Pay do, what do, what do consultants earn then? A consultant's pay scale starts at around eighty thousand pounds. Well, okay, um, so I, I find it hard to feel sorry for people who are earning eighty thousand pounds, and that's only the lowest paid amongst them. A lot of them are on far more than a hundred thousand pounds a year. Do you really expect us to sympathise with people on more than a hundred thousand pounds a year, saying, "Give me more money"? Well, I'd ask you, Kevin, what would it take you to be looking after someone and be the ultimate decision maker for a patient? What level of risk, um, you know, how, how how can that be compensated? What is a fair level of pay for that? Because 80 grand, 100 grand, that seems all right. It's, it seems all right, but you're forgetting about the student debt that these people go through, the numerous numbers of years of training, exams, all of these things that they pay for themselves. And ultimately, as the UK, as a country that prides ourselves on, you know, paying staff fairly, People are leaving. So clearly we are not doing a good job of retaining doctors because they are getting offers elsewhere and they're taking those offers, which is sad because they've been trained in this country and they're still leaving. So something isn't right there. I, I, I get that. Uh, do you worry, though, Taha, about patient safety? I mean, you say there's a Christmas Day coverage and that patient safety isn't being compromised, but obviously it is. I mean, you can't have all the doctors and the consultants walk out and say, oh, that doesn't make any difference to patient safety. It obviously does. And also it means that the waiting list, 7 million people get longer, more and more cancellations of, uh, of surgery, of treatment, of appointments. I mean, 850,000 surgeries since Christmas have been cancelled. Uh, and we learned that uh, in a recent two-day strike by doctors, uh, 30,000 cancer appointments, including surgeries, were also cancelled. Do you worry about all of that? Of course I worry about it, but I worried about it before the strikes. I worried about it before COVID. It isn't a new worry. That is the thing that I want to emphasise here, is that these issues are not new. We had a waiting list which was rising rapidly even before COVID. Forget the strikes. I'm talking about even before COVID. Things were rising rapidly and that waiting list was getting bigger and bigger. The government then had an opportunity to blame things on COVID and now the government's got an opportunity to try and blame things on the strikes. These lists are rising regardless of whether doctors strike or not. I totally, totally agree that patients deserve better care. But I would argue that that is the reason the strikes are happening because unless you fund your NHS properly... Unless you pay your staff properly, you will lose staff. If you don't have staff, you can't treat patients. That's what it comes down to. And, the, the, you know, this is all uh, proven even by a government-backed, um, you know, a survey and research by the King's Fund that found that the NHS has been underfunded for years by numerous Tory, Tory governments. OK, yeah. So don't you find it frustrating, though? As I say, 
I reject the notion that the NHS needs any more money. It gets the best part of 200 billion quid a year. It just needs to spend that money more wisely. Uh, stop paying all these thousands of middle managers these vast salaries for no particular reason. And don't you find it frustrating, Taha? Did, did you not find it frustrating last week to learn that the NHS is advertising for 244 more diversity officers? Uh, they, 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 what, what is going on? I think these questions maybe you're asking to someone. Well, that you must find that frustrating. Give me that. <laughs> I find it frustrating that patients are waiting for care and that doctors are and not. The, and the NHS is spending its money on diversity officers and not you. And that the NHS is underfunded. It's not underfunded. It is, it is terribly organised. It needs reorganised. 200 billion quid a year is just fine. Just don't, don't pay all these middle managers well a diversity deal. Two hundred and forty-four diversity officers. That that's a good idea, is it? Given that doctors and nurses and ambulance drivers are all striking for more money, you think that's a great idea to hire two hundred and forty-four more better, diversity what officers? I would say we need to shift the Come focus. Come on, Taha, you can give me that. <laughs> that's been lost during these strikes. One billion has been lost during these strikes to the NHS. And guess what? That's the amount of money that it would have taken to actually. Yeah, achieve yeah. pay restoration yeah well you're sidestepping the issue of the 244 not, diver okay so do you think that's a great do you I think it's a good think idea that's my place to speak about oh yeah well it is actually because because you the money that you could be earning that they could give to you is going to diversity that that officers that money could have come anyway well, you know, it's, uh, it's a waste money. of money. It's a dreadful waste of money. You guys should be getting that money, not diversity officers. Simple as that. One last question, though, Taha. Uh, I think we can agree on this. In fact, I agree with quite a lot of what you've said, to be fair. Uh, and I think you must uh, admit I've made a few points as well that are worth agreeing with. But it, for God's sake, can you guys uh, and uh, Steve Barkley, the health secretary, and his, can you get around the table? Because if you're not talking, uh, nothing will be uh, resolved, will it? I mean, it's time to start talking. And I understand that Barclay is as uh, reticent as some of the doctors to get around the table. But I think the public are saying, please, can you lot start talking? I agree with you. And if you've got a way of getting him around the table, let me know, because the guy <laughs> seems to be a bit of an enigma. Yeah. Um, I fully agree that negotiations need to occur. Um, that we we all need to get around the table and there needs to be a solution because um, at the moment, nobody is winning. I, I agree with that point. Uh, and also, uh, I'd like to, it's good to talk to you, Taha. And I, I really do wish you all the best and I hope a resolution uh, can be reached fairly soon. That's Taha Nadim, junior doctor. What do you think about what he's saying? I mean, I'm saying 200 billion quid a year for the NHS. It's plenty. It's just they spend the money like drunken sailors on ridiculous things like 244 new diversity officers to add to the many diversity officers they've already got. What patients get cured by that? What treatment is uh, handed out by diversity officers? What is the damn point? It is utterly utterly insane. Uh, when we come back, uh, we'll be talking about Russell Brand. That next, I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV live from the Talk Radio studios. Nationwide, by your side, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Welcome back. Uh, let's talk about Russell Brand, shall we? By the way, taking your calls in just a while. Uh, 0344 uh, You know what we're talking about. So talk about Russell Brand if you want. But uh, what about Tony Blair brokering this uh, summit meeting uh, with uh, Keir Starmer and Macron yesterday? 
and uh, Macron uh, apparently receiving uh, Starmer's application for Britain to become an associate member of the EU. Back in the fold. What do you think about that? 0344-499-1000. Now, uh, let's talk now, though, about the BBC and uh, uh, Russell Brand and to go straight over to media commentator Nigel Pawley. Uh, morning, Nigel. Hello, hello there. Kevin, you seem uh, very calm and laid back today. Not uh, yeah, 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 yeah. You, you know me, uh, very calm, very yeah, very uh, ne never furious about anything. Anyway, let's talk about Brand. Uh, I think the uh, the angle that I'm interested in here is, you know, obviously he stands accused of very nefarious activities back in the noughties when he was working for Channel Four and also the BBC, Radio Two, Six Music, uh, television appearances as well. Uh, now, the Times and the Sunday Times, who, uh, along with Channel 4's dispatches, are responsible for this expose, for the allegations against Brand, which, of course, he denies. Four women say he sexually abused them, one rape, uh, and another woman has come forward and gone to the police. He denies all wrongdoing. Uh, now, the Times and the Sunday Times, along the way, have put in uh, freedom of information requests to that publicly funded organisation, the state broadcaster, the BBC, uh, to find out whether or not there were complaints about Brand back in those uh, allegedly dark days. Uh, guess what? The BBC has failed to respond uh, numerous times. Uh, in the end, uh, they said, well, if we give you this information, it may compromise the privacy of Russell Brand. Now, this flies in the face of Tim Davey, the director general, yesterday saying uh, full investigation and we're going to be open and transparent. The BBC is keeping secrets again, isn't it? It is. And it's it's protecting the BBC, which is what it yeah. does best and its executives. Um, I, I got to say, I'll, I'll declare up front, I interviewed Russell Brand quite a few times. Uh, I didn't like the guy much. I thought he was... Um, there was something about him that was not what you saw. He was overindulged. He was he was treated with, you'd have to tread on eggshells around him. Any questions he'd moan to his publicist or his manager, you would be blocked forevermore. And, uh, you know, the BBC saw Russell Brand, as he's seen now, there's something of the night about him. One of, one of the people I saw said that there was something in his eyes, of sort of Charles Manson, dark, hellish eyes. And, and you know, he had got those, yeah, yeah. Surprise that some people saw. But the BBC saw him, and this is back to the BBC's obsession with youth culture, getting down with the kids. And silly middle-aged BBC executives cuddled <laughs> up, literally, you've seen the pictures, to Russell Brand. He could do nothing wrong until he managed to phone a 78-year-old guy up and said he slept with his granddaughter. And then the BBC sort of took action against him. Yeah. But reluctantly, I think it's fair to say, they, they didn't really like losing him as they didn't like losing Frankie Boyle when he uh, when he insulted disabled kids' own, you know, uh, one of Katie Price's... Yeah, well, they had, they had Frankie Boyle back, didn't they? And by the way... Well, they, that's right. They always, they're, and, always, they're always saying, oh, look how decisive we were in the Saxgate when, uh, drama. Yeah. Uh, well, uh, so Russell Brand had to walk the plank. Uh, guess mm. who didn't? Uh, his accomplice, uh, Jonathan Ross. Yeah. Why? Because Jonathan Ross was a lot more useful to the BBC mm. than Russell Brand. But Russell Brand, uh, well, the BBC stands accused of enabling this guy. 
uh, yeah. of, of turning a blind eye to his activities. Uh, and one a Radio 2 boss was uh, described as being besotted with him and treated him like her pet. Uh, and he could do no wrong. So that's why the Times and the Sunday Times. So, well, you know, were there complaints about Russell Brand back then, uh, back in the noughties or where, during the time period we're talking about? And the BBC won't tell them. I, I'm pretty confident that there were complaints and there were allegations because we worked in newspapers and we're not going to go into details of any of those things, but uh, there were issues around... We, I mean, I will tell this story, which is a factual story. I know one of our reporters went along to interview Russell Brand and ended up being in a consensual relationship with him for a while. And oh, she yeah. wasn't the only one. There were several reporters from several tabloid papers who had relationships with Russell Brand. Consensual, whatever. He was a very, uh, you know, I can see to some people, he, he, he was very, very... Um, well, he was put forward as, a, as an attractive, dangerous, roguish character. And now, allegedly, we're learning there was a much darker side to that yeah. roguishness. Uh, and the, the, but the question is, is, you know, why won't the BBC tell us whether or not it received complaints about his behaviour in those days. They're yeah. saying, they're saying, oh, well, it could compromise Russell Brand's privacy. Well, uh, you know, hey ho, the public, yeah. oh, uh, they owe the public an explanation. Never mind Russell I Brand's mean, pro privacy. It's not what people Russell really Brand. care about right now. Yeah, Russell Brand uh, was like a podcasting <laughs> Jack Sparrow, really. I mean, he had that sort of the same sort of uh, you know piratical appeal. The BBC. I'm afraid. I, I think we've talked before about the Martin Bashir and Princess Diana stuff, and that took. They keep, about, what, they're still keeping years? secrets about that. They won't give up all the thousands of emails. They won't give yeah. up. Jimmy Savile, who they kept a lot of secrets about. We know about that. So I'm afraid this is a pattern of of behaviour the BBC have. They hide behind protecting. Now I've got to say, as a journalist, as as a person. And as a father and, and, and grandfather of, of daughters and, and granddaughters, uh, predators like Russell Brand are not exactly... Uh, alleged predators, However, alleged predators. Alleged predators, although I think, I think he said No, himself, no, no, he's an alleged... He's, he's, he alleged. never said he was a, a predator. He said uh, he had a lot of sex. He was promiscuous, uh, uh, Sorry, but all the sex the was... Word, all, all the all, all the uh, sex was consensual. We've got to be yeah, careful I, I meant, I meant promiscuous, so the wrong P there, sorry about okay. that. Um, but by the same token, he has not, as far as we know, been pulled in by a plot. He's not been called in well, by Well, he, he is now under official investigation He's by under the investigation, police. Because a fifth not, woman has come forward to yeah, the police. Not, to the police. But he has not been interviewed under caution. Well, we don't know yet. We don't know that. Well, we don't know that, but I think we would, I think we would have... We do know he's under official... He is being investigated by the police. But no charges. No well, charges. Yeah, I mean, it would be a bit fast for that, wouldn't it? Yeah. No, but he's being tried. These, these allegations... It, don't start that trial by media nonsense. There's no such thing. This is the covering of a major story. It's not a yeah. trial by media. That's just a cliche. It's nonsense. Well, no, it, it isn't. But if you were in a situation and you feel you're innocent, and most people say they're innocent of things... Uh -huh. By the same token, I'm sure the facts will come out and they are probably going to be possibly as more horrific than we've already seen in the Sunday Times, which didn't, you know, which was still quite guarded. However, he has not 
been found guilty of anything yet and hasn't been charged with anything yet. So we have to put that caution there. However, the BBC, I would have thought, would have been very clear, uh, very um, <coughs> keen to clear their decks to actually have opened yeah. up their books and said, yes, this was what happened then. We had X complaints or easily we had no complaints. Yeah. How difficult is to say we had no complaints? Tell us, yeah, tell us, tell us either way. Uh, but once again, they're yeah. keeping secrets. Uh, just one more development uh, Channel 4 Chief Executive Alex Mayon uh, has said that Russell Brand, the Russell Brand allegations show that, uh, this is uh, Alex saying this, that terrible behaviour towards women has been historically tolerated in the TV industry. So uh, there are definitely questions to be answered yeah. about what was going but, but on. But not in... just to women. There have been people who are pretty horrible in television to young men, as we've seen at, at the legendary ITV. Yeah. <laughs> you know, the, the, so, television industry, no, you know, is a horrible industry with a lot of horrible people involved in it. Mm. And a lot of horrible people get to be very successful in it and they are protected. That, sadly, has been a fact for many, many years. Yeah. Hopefully, Alex, things will change. Well, Alex Mayon goes on to say the allegations, of course, need to be followed up further. And we and the BBC and Banerjee, that's the production company that bought Endemol that made uh, Big Brother, are busy investigating. Well, I think that uh, Alex Mayon is obviously being quite open about it. Uh, the BBC, not so much. Uh, mm. Just another day in the history of the secretive state broadcaster. Nigel, good to talk to you as always. Uh, your calls next. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV live from the Talk Radio studios. On the app, on your smart speaker, Talk Radio and Talk TV. Uh, this is the final hour of my mid-morning spectacular. I suppose it's the afternoon spectacular now. 60 minutes still to go. Ian Collins will take over the helm at uh, 1 p.m. and take you through to 3 p.m. If you're interested, later on I'll be back uh, on Talk TV on the talk at 9 p.m. Uh, now, uh, coming up this hour, uh, in a little while, we talk about Diane Abbott. She has accused Keir Starmer of trying to end her parliamentary career. She has, of course, had the Labour whip suspended in Parliament uh, uh, amid allegations of anti-Semitism. Uh, Keir Starmer accused her of outright anti-Semitism and uh, took away the whip from her. So she is effectively in Parliament now an independent, although she remains a member of the Labour Party. It looks as if she might want to stand again, but she says because uh, she's a MP for Hackney, isn't she? And she says that uh, Starmer's trying to stop her. Uh, so uh, we'll be taking a look at that in just a little while. Also, Antiques Roadshow. Uh, how did it become the Antiques Guilt Trip? Why has it gone woke? Uh, millions of fans of that programme, been around for years, big hit programme still after all these decades, uh, seems to be going down a woke rabbit hole and uh, destroying the entertainment factor. I don't know why the television industry does all this. Uh, your calls as well, 0344 uh, Before we get to any of that, uh, book your seats, get your popcorn, because at 4.30 this afternoon, Rishi Sunak is going to be making one of his speeches. Uh, can't wait. Uh, but what it actually is, though, it's quite interesting, it, 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 is they're calling it the bonfire of the green pledges. So... 
until recently, uh, I think we were living, living under a kind of a green tyranny, really, you know, where we all had to uh, reduce our lives and devote our time to getting to carbon net zero in 2050. You know, we're going to be banned from buying new petrol and diesel cars uh, by 2030. And also, of course, uh, we're required to get rid of all of our gas boilers. No, thanks very much. Mine works really well. I don't want a cold pump. Sorry, heat pump. That's what you call them. Uh, Rishi Sunak seems late in life to have worked out that making people poor, uh, poorer and colder uh, might not be much of a vote winner. So he's staging a bit of a green U-turn, uh, but uh, don't get too excited. Uh, let's talk to uh, the director of Net Zero Watch, Andrew Montford. Hello, Andrew. Hi. Uh, now, uh, you know, this is an encouraging change of tack by Sunak. You know, I mean, I don't know why it's taken the people in Westminster so long to work out that we don't want our lives ruined on the altar of something called carbon net zero that very few of us even understand, nor do we care about. Uh, so he's sort of trying to sort of U-turn and say, well, you know, we're, we're not going to ban petrol and diesel cars in 2030. Uh, you know, we're going to be a bit relaxed about gas spoilers. Maybe you can keep them after all. So he's U-turning. But of course, then he goes and spoils the party by saying, but we're still entirely committed to carbon net zero by 2050. So the tyranny will continue due to that ridiculous pledge. Uh, when do you think Rishi Sunak, or for that matter, any other Westminster dork politician, is going to work out that the best way to win votes is to say, we're going to scrap all of this stuff. Uh, we're going to let you drive what you want. We're going to let you go on holiday to Spain. Uh, we're not going to put great big levies on your energy bills. When are they going to work out that would be a vote winner? Yeah, there is a huge gap in the political marketplace, isn't there? Um, um, a party, I think, that, that stood up and said, no, this is nonsense, we're not going to do it, would would uh, potentially get a lot of attention and a lot of votes for themselves. I think it will take um, uh, the Conservative Party a while to come round to this idea because um, you know, they're divided on the issue. There's, there, there's, a, there's a strong green wing of the, of the Conservative Party who have a lot of influence and can threaten to take, the, take their votes and vote with the opposition. Um, so um, Mr Sunak has to be quite careful. So I think, you know, this is very encouraging that he's, he's done this, that he's, he's, he's said we're not, you know, he's not saying we're going to U-turn, he's <laughs> saying we're going to delay and perhaps water down a little bit. And, you know, there's been huge squeals from the, from the Green Tories, but at the moment he seems to be sticking to his guns and that's good. Um, I think, you know, with where the Conservatives are in the polls... There really wasn't any alternative but for Mr Sunak to try something different, just carrying on as they were saying, yes, we're going to stick to net zero um, was was not really an option anymore. Something had to change. The thing I found very interesting here was that Mr Sunak says, said in um, his statement last night that successive governments had not been honest about the costs of net zero. This is something that we've been banging on about for many years. And it's now quite significant that he, he's, he's saying that they haven't been straight. It's clear that the, the, the figure they said 50 billion a year was probably wrong by, you know, four or five hundred percent at least. Um, the, the costs that people are going to be asked to bear are going to be in 
the, the of the order of you know a hundred thousand pounds to three hundred thousand pounds per household over 30 years it's a colossal sum of money essentially the, the idea that you could do this was just not grounded in reality at all and now those the the pain is starting to be felt the pain from having tried to start down this path yeah the political price is being paid so there is no alternative for mr sunak but to change course uh, what do you think uh makes these uh po so many politicians buy into all this green stuff. Uh, only recently, uh, you know, these green backbench Tories, you know, I don't know why you would be so environmentally obsessed if you're a Conservative, but only recently, I think it was last week, Rishi Sunak, who said there will be no more uh, inshore wind farms, uh, was forced by his green backbenchers to do a U-turn and say, OK, we will have them. Uh, my theory on politicians, this is from all sides of the House. Labour are just as bad. Look at uh, Starmer's election pledge, uh, a greener, fairer future. I'll take fairer. Don't really care about the green a bit. Uh, I think they're locked in their own world and uh, they believe that, you know, all politicians are driven by uh, uh, polls, public polls, by surveys. And they send out these pollsters onto the streets to basically ask people, you know, on balance, you know, would you like to save the planet or would you like it to be destroyed? And of course they say, well, we'd like to save the planet. Uh, they don't ask, uh, would you like to save the planet and it's going to cost you £300,000 over the next few years? Uh, then the answer comes back differently. So I believe they're deluded by these polls. Uh, yeah, it, it's and they, not and just they, the polls. Yeah, they believe that people, you know, are really signed up to this green project. Now, I don't think they are. What people, ordinary people care about is feeding their kids, putting a roof over their heads, going to Spain once a year and driving their own car. That, 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 you deliver all of that, you win the next election. So yeah, what, what is it that inspires these politicians to be so green? Yeah, I, I think they, they do have this idea that the public are behind them because most of the mainstream media tells them that the public are behind it because as you as you rightly point out there are these polls that ask essentially ask ask people to virtue signal they say do you love the planet and do you want to save the planet In, interestingly if you ask them how much they're willing to spend to save the planet the answer is very little at all if anything yes. they really want somebody else to pay for it so in reality um no the, the public are not behind this but the public, too, have been misled about what it's going to cost them. I think if they did realise, they would be absolutely horrified. And, and so there would be absolutely no future in, in um, the Net Zero project. Um, that's, that's what's happening now. Reality is biting. The public have started to realise what, the, what the, it's going to cost them. And the politicians now have to adapt to that. It's quite difficult for them because the politicians have been fibbing about the costs of the project for many, many years. They're now going to have to put their hands in the air and say, well, they've got to come up with some reason why we're going to do something different. There's not many other things that they can do that is going to uh, uh, um, keep the green wings happy, the green, the green fringe happy. But, you know, you can sort of drive towards nuclear, for example, rather than renewables. Um, that will make the whole project much cheaper. Um, and, you know, of course, if we had nuclear power that was cheap, then a heat pump would make sense. I mean, you can heat pumps, they work, um, but they're just more expensive than gas. Um, so, um, you know, there may be an option there. There may be a way out for Mr. Mm -hmm. Sunak, but he's got to pluck up the courage to face down the renewables lobby.
As uh, Tony Blair pointed out, of all people, uh, just a couple of weeks back, I mean, the, the, the thing that, that these politicians, these green-obsessed politicians have been rumbled on is the absurdity of our position. You know, we, the people of Britain, have to reduce our lives. You don't drive petrol cars. You get an electric car. Don't drive diesel cars. Don't fly all over the place. You know, give us all the money on these levies. You know, pay more for your energy bills. And we produce less than 1% of the world's carbon emissions. So anything we do, if we went back to living in mud huts and going round on horse and carts, it would make no difference to the pollution of the world. Meanwhile, China spews out 28%. The sheer statistics make this stance by our government and indeed Labour look absolutely ridiculous and punitive, yeah, yeah. punitive to the people. Yeah, I mean the the bickering on 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 social media yesterday when this news came out was was really quite funny. As you point out, we're one percent of global emissions, and you know, um, heating and transport is only a fraction of of our energy use. Um, so uh, having hysterics over the fact that the target is going to be put back by five years is a nonsense. Its importance is you know it's not going to affect the climate at all. Its importance is purely political. Mr Sunak is signaling that he he wants to change direction and he now has a battle with his party to decide whether whether that is going to happen or not. I think it probably is important. They need clear clear green water if you like between them and the Labour Party. The Labour Party are saying they are going to go absolutely gung ho for this that there is probably electoral advantage for the conservatives in saying okay we've made a mistake it's all gone wrong we need we're going to change yeah i would if i was rishi sunak say we're cancelling carbon net zero vote for me and people will they're not signed up to this green project as i say politicians delude themselves that they're bringing the people with them with all of this uh, save the planet stuff well they're not they're just not so andrew fantastic to talk to you andrew Montford, their director of uh, net zero watch what do you think have you had enough of all of this? Uh, why don't you give me a call? 0344 499 uh, When we come back, uh, we'll be taking your calls and your texts uh, and your tweets. Uh, so I'll be reading some out and talking to some of you about all of the issues we've been speaking about all day. But uh, the latest uh, issue on the agenda is the green claptrap. Uh, the Prime Minister is going to U-turn later on and say you can keep your petrol cars, your diesel cars, uh, maybe even keep your gas boilers because he's suddenly realising that's a vote winner. Uh, isn't it about time he went the whole hog and got rid of this useless carbon net zero pledge that is ruining all of our lives? Get rid of it, eh? 03444991000. That next, your calls. I'm Kevin O'Sullivan. This is Talk TV live from the Talk Radio studios. See it, hear it, think it. Talk Radio and Talk TV. Across the UK, online and on DAB, the independent republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio. If you enjoyed that, be sure to catch the whole show 10 to 1, Monday to Friday on Talk Radio, via DAB, online or via the Talk Radio app. If you have an opinion on the stories we cover, we'd love to hear from you. Call us 0344 499 1000 or tweet at Talk Radio during the show to have your say. The Independent Republic of Mike Graham on Talk Radio.